All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in this Choir Nerd podcast. Uh, apologies for such a long delay since my last drop. It's been a wild, it's been a wild season um, full of recording, pandemic recording. Um, if you follow this podcast on Facebook, you might have caught that this uh, podcast was featured as one of the be 20 best choral podcasts of 2021, according to Welp Magazine. So I'm not sure how that really gets assessed, but thanks for your interest uh, uh, in, in getting that podcast on that list. Today, I'm pleased to have, now, is it laryngologist? Uh, very close. Laryn <laughs> laryngologist. Laryngologist. Yes. Yeah, that's a word I've never had to say before. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Neil, and then how do you pronounce your last name? Uh, Bot. Bot. Dr. Yep. Neil Bot. Uh, he is the assistant professor at the University of Washington and focused on advancing the understanding of neuromuscular changes to the larynx with aging and neurodegenerative disease. He is working to develop novel regenerative therapies to improve patients' quality of life with voice, swallowing, and breathing disorders. Uh, thank you, Neil, for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is fantastic. Before I ask you what all that means, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you uh, became interested in this topic, and um, what you're currently working on? Sure. Well, great to be here. Um, I am a physician and surgeon, and my field, uh, like you said, is laryngology, which is the study of voice, breathing, swallowing, everything to do with the larynx and the upper aerodigestive tract. Um, I completed residency, so after medical school, in a field called otolaryngology, head and neck surgery. And I finished that at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, which is really confusing because there's a University of Washington and a Washington University. So, mm -hmm. um, and then I did a one-year fellowship under uh, the instruction mentorship of Dr. Michael Johns at University of Southern California, uh, which was heavily focused on the care of the performing voice uh, singers. And, um, and now I've been here for about a year uh, at the University of Washington. So uh, my practice, while it does have a focus on performers and singers, I also am looking at all different types of people, uh, people with voice disorders, with aging, neurodegenerative disease, um, cough, uh, globus sensation, which means you feel something in your throat, um, breathing problems, and everything associated with it. So it's a pretty robust practice despite being a very focused area. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, but is there something that just drew your attention to the voice box? Like, is there a, is there a cool story to share there somewhere? <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that with a lot of people in the medical field, it's has a lot to do with the people you're around, your mentors, people who get you excited. And for me, um, you know, I grew up playing piano, uh, guitar, was in band and, you know, and, and, you know, took some voice lessons for a little while. And I thought it was a good marriage of, you know, the science. And then there's a lot of art in our field too. And, and, and the best part is, you know, when it comes to voice, 
breathing, swallowing, those are such fundamental things that you do every day. And a lot of times our treatments, surgeries can have an immediate impact on someone. And um, I'm obviously biased, but I think it's, I think it's the coolest field because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're, you're, you can immediately help someone in ways that maybe they had just accepted as their new normal. Mm -hmm. Cool. So let's just start with a really super basic question. Sure. How does the voice work? And I'm going to just throw that up there in case that's helpful yeah. to anyone out there. But uh, yeah, why don't you just take us through, you know, how that all works for us? Awesome. Yeah, I love this cross-sectional picture. I think it, it captures a lot of the complexity. Um, and, and it's not a simple question. It's a complex question. But we'll start really basic. So voice starts with air expelled from our lungs, expired from our lungs. That's, that's where voice starts, air. And your vocal cords, which are located in what is outlined in green as the larynx behind your Adam's apple right here, um, your vocal cords come together. They come together enough so that air that you're expiring out vibrates the surface of the vocal cords. So they want to be closed enough that it vibrates, but they don't want to be so closed that no air can get through. So it has to be kind of in that perfect position. And depending on the tension, which we'll get into, your, vi your vocal cords vibrate at a different frequency or different pitch. Mm -hmm. The air then goes through the back of your throat, your sinuses, your nose, depending on the, the, tri the, the speech formation that you're uh, going for, and it has a certain character and sound. So it's sort of shaped by our upper anatomy, our sinuses, our tongue, our throat. But simply put, it's a lot of factors, including how much air you expel, the position of your vocal cords, the tension on your vocal cords, and what your upper anatomy is doing to shape that sound. Okay. So I hope that makes sense. Pretty simple. And there's, you know, so much intricacy with each of those steps. Yeah. So then what gives us our unique sound? Um, yeah. How much does the, the vocal cords themselves, um, how much are they a factor in what we sound like? It's a tough question, um, but I think it, it, it depends on the person. So there are some professional singers that when we look at their vocal cords, there are some irregularities. There is a little bit of wear and tear, but that leads to a signature voice, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, it, the vocal cords maybe don't come together quite as nicely as someone who hasn't been through it. So there's slight gaps, which lead to this character of more of a breathy sound. Um, and, and some people do just fine with that. They, they have a little imperfection and it goes to show that we're not looking for perfect vocal cords. We're looking for functional voice and that's the most important. But I'd say probably the majority of people are able to shape their sound beyond the level of the vocal folds. So above the level of the vocal folds, they are able to do things with the false the vocal folds, which is an area just above the vocal folds, the throat, the tongue, the palate, 
other parts of the upper anatomy to shape the sound. So to really answer your question, I think that in some, probably the minority of people, the imperfections on the vocal cords lead to some character. But I would say in the majority of people, it's what he or she is doing with the upper anatomy that shapes the sound. Gotcha. So when you're talking about people with chords that don't, you know, come together fully, are you talking about singers tend to have this or just sort of anyone? Or is this a particular um, a singer phenomenon? Yeah, that's an that's a important question and distinction to point out. Um, when we evaluate a performer, singer, actor, we are, are really our biggest tool as laryngologists is something called stroboscopy. And what stroboscopy is, is a type of imaging that allows us to look at the vibration of the vocal folds basically using a strobe light phenomenon. So it almost looks like they're moving in slow motion. Mm-hmm. What this allows us to do beyond what other otolaryngologists do is look at the vibrational pattern as well as the free edge of the vocal folds. And we can see with our own eyes, slight imperfections, especially in the middle of the vocal folds, which we call the mid membranous region or the striking zone where there's the most pressure when when someone is singing. In an average person, they probably wouldn't notice slight imperfections in their vocal folds. They're able to do what they need to do, go to work, do all those things. But when we're talking about performers and singers, especially when we're trying to sing in our higher register, falsetto, even trying to sing softly and high, those slight imperfections get magnified dramatically. And so a lot of times the people coming into our clinic with slight imperfections are the people who really use their voice uh, professionally as singers. Um, but it even it even extends to people who use their voice a lot, like lawyers or teachers or, or other, other folks like that. So to, to, to answer your question, those imperfections are probably noticed more by those who really need their voice to be at the tip top uh, level. Gotcha. God, that's super interesting. Um, yeah. We'll come back to that later. Uh, there's the, um, but, but I, I want to get through a few more uh, questions before we talk about you know what we can do about these things. Yeah. You know, um, what what part of our voice box gives us our vocal range? This is this is fantastic. So our vocal range, uh, at least the way I look at it, and I'm coming at it from as more of a physician, um, and so it might be a little different based on your definition, but. Vocal range is your lowest note to your highest note, what you're comfortable hitting. Um, And when we have singers, we often ask them to tell us what they think their range is. And depending on what type of singer you are, you may have more difficulty trying to push the limits. And as, as singers, we're always trying to push our limits, either lower or higher pitches to really expand our range. And so it's a complex interplay of lots of different things, including our vocal folds, how much pressure we are able to generate from our lungs, if we're able to hold our vocal cords in a really fixed position while generating a lot of pressure. And then I'm just gonna throw out two muscles and not to get overly technical, but 
you've got a muscle called your thyroarytenoid muscle, which makes up the bulk of your vocal folds if you looked at them. And then you have another muscle that sits on the outside of your voice box called your cricothyroid muscle. We'll just call it the CT muscle. And that's a really important tensor. It elongates your vocal folds, makes it more tense. I think of it like a guitar string, you know, turning the peg on the guitar string. That's a little bit what that muscle is doing. So the interplay between how much pressure you're able to generate, how much tension you can put in your vocal folds without your vocal folds breaking from their position, I think define a lot of your upper register, your upper range. So a lot of singers, that's really where the money is, like being able to get high. So being able to really tense your vocal folds in a way that is comfortable and doesn't create too much problems. The issue is though, with that high register, slight imperfections, like I said, get magnified. Mm -hmm. on, the, on the opposite side of it, the lower register are our bass notes. You need your guitar strings or your vocal folds to be thicker, more loose. Um, you know, I think, I think like a, a, like a bass guitar string, you, you, a, a, like a heavier, fatter string, you want them a, a little looser, you don't want as much tension. So you'll see people when they're trying to create that posture that sometimes they're even pushing the back of their tongue back to, to really push the vocal folds in a very um, loose posture to get as, as loose of a, a vocal fold posture as possible. So um, to answer your question, it's a complex interplay of lots of different muscles and it's if to get up there, to get the higher register, you really need to create a lot of tension comfortably. And to get your lower notes, you have to take away tension. And sometimes your anatomy just doesn't allow you to do those notes. Uh-huh. And that was sort of my next question. Like, what makes, like, a bass um, sound super different than, from me, for example, yeah. when, when they sing? I mean, what physical characteristics do they have maybe sort of innately that that I don't for them to be able to sing that low. Yeah. And there are people who dedicate their lives to this kind of science who probably can provide an even more granular detail. But, you know, big picture, I think the guitar string analogy works. So um, the reason why men generally have lower pitches than women is their voice box tends to be bigger. So a bigger vocal fold is going to tend to give you a lower note. Um, so the physical act of having a longer vocal fold, mm -hmm. um, creates that gotcha. a, a thicker vocal fold, uh, will also do that as well. And, um, and, and, and not having tension. So, you know, as someone goes through puberty, their voices tends to be higher and, and also the, the position of the, the larynx too, as it, as it descends lower, it may also change the, the, the frequency uh, range as well. So I've noticed, I've noticed that the people's voices tend to get lower as they age. Um, is that something, is that a real thing from your side? Um, uh, I've, I mean, it's just a, you know, like, oh, it's, you're a soprano, you know, in this decade, and then, you know, they eventually become an alto a couple of decades later. Yeah. Um, is it, is that a thing as you age that it's harder to sing high? Um, maybe in maybe in the singing world uh, that may be true and and an explanation for that might be that over time 
the muscle ability to generate enough muscle tension to create that higher pitch um, is lost. You've just lost some strength to get up there mm -hmm. and also generate diaphragmatic pressure to do that. Um, interestingly, though, in the general population, um, older voices tend to actually be higher pitched, just speaking voices, not singing voices. And the reason is, at least we think, that a lot of the muscle tone has gone away. The vocal folds are not as strong. And so in order to generate more voice, the person is using that CT muscle, like we talked about earlier, that turning of the peg. And so next time you see somebody in their 70s or 80s, not always, but they actually tend to have a higher pitched voice than, than me, because if you think of that really elderly person, it's kind of weak, uh, tremulous, and, and a little bit higher pitched. Huh. Interesting. So what about what gives us our unique timbre uh, to mm -hmm. our voices, right? So even though people can have the same range, they don't sound the same. You know, it's why we can recognize people distinctly from each other. Um, yeah. Why do you think, well, why is that? I think it's a combination of anatomy and technique. So anatomy, we know that with the way our palate sits, our tongue, our sinuses, that sound vibrates throughout our, throughout our body and comes out of our mouth. And so I'm sure that's a big part of it. The other thing is how we shape our sound. And so in our clinic at University of Washington, um, it's truly a multidisciplinary patient experience. So I'm the physician surgeon in the room, but of equal importance is our speech language pathologist who is looking at the techniques of voice production, thinking about therapy to help optimize vocal efficiency. Holy and um, yeah, and so, in terms of developing character, they're looking at that more carefully and looking at the strain patterns and how you're using their voice. So it, it's a, it's truly a combination of anatomy and, and the function. Do you think it has something to do with, um, so I met with a voice teacher, I think her, uh, Don Padula. Do you, have you, do you know of a Don Padula? Uh, no, I don't. But yeah. uh, anyway, she, she's, she said, or, um, that you know, if we had, if we sort of had our, if we all cut our heads off and and you know spoke, that we'd all sound the same. It'd be, it would sound like a, you know, if if it was just our voice box, kind of making noise, it would sound like a, you know, a trumpet with just the mouthpiece, you know. And what gives us our unique sound is sort of our head and the way we use it, um, and that seems to resonate to me that 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 the flesh in our head contribute to it's like because when you sing um we're just not singing one pitch you know we're right. singing there's a sort of overtone series above it and below it actually that 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 we're engaging and um it the idea that what gives us our unique sound and timbre is what portions you know we're activating in those overtone frequencies um so i guess to have you has have you I, mean, I guess I put that to you. Like, does that does that make sense to you? Yeah, no, I think that makes uh, that's very well said. Kind of a, a graphic way to explain it, but yeah, I think that makes sense <laughs> to me, you know. Um, and 
it's a it's a fantastic point because as voice doctors, we're very focused on the voice box. We're very focused on the larynx because that's the first place that sound is produced, kind of upstream from everything. So we're often thinking about that. Um, but it's it really emphasized why care of the professional or performing voice is really multifaceted. You know, we're looking at one part of it, but good singing instruction, speech pathologists, a lot of, a lot of different uh, people are integral to the whole equation. It, you know, it's not just one easy fix from the vocal cord level. And, and to further complicate it, slight imperfections in the vocal cords or issues that develop over time can lead to compensation. We do things on, at the level above our vocal cords. We might strain more or uh, do something, you know, a little abnormal that leads to vocal fatigue and strain to compensate for what's happening at the vocal cord level. So um, I, I think that analogy is good and I think it makes sense. And uh, it, it's a good thing to always keep in mind. Yeah. I mean, I think when, when I, from, from a singer's perspective, you know, one of the things we're most concerned about is projection and singing over, you know, a large orchestra um, uh, and having enough facility to do that. And, um, you know, perhaps more attention needs to be paid to your voice box to make sure, you know, the mechanism isn't, isn't, uh, or, or I should say is working properly. Um, but I, a, a lot of attention is normally paid to what, how your technique can engage more overtones basically. So you can project. I don't think it's, you know, opera singers tend to be really impressive that way. You know, they make so much noise like I, I couldn't yell, you know, my biggest yell uh, couldn't couldn't go over an opera singer. I mean, that's how enormously loud they seem to me. Like I don't know if you've ever sat in a room with one, but yeah. singing "Happy Birthday," but it yeah. is it is really quite something. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 um, there's something about you know, it's like a um, a challenge or, or that, that, that's sort of what I feel like, um, voice lessons are all about is sort of accessing different, different spaces and, and getting different overtones in there. Um, just real quickly. Hey, Renwick, thanks for the, the question. Um, why don't we transition to Renwick's question here, actually, since he just threw in, uh, thanks for tuning in. So Renwick says, I'm the base section leader in Cantor with me at Trinity Episcopal Parish. I'm 66, and he seems to be losing his low range and having a hard time singing. Um, is this due to age? Yeah, it's possible. It's also possible that it's not. And um, that's where sometimes an evaluation uh, by a voice doctor, especially in a multidisciplinary fashion, is helpful because we can see what's happening at the vocal fold level that's leading to the loss of your ability to hit those notes. Um, is it a problem with the posture? Is there some muscle tension that's keeping the vocal folds in a more open position so you're getting air as opposed to sound? And so, um, you know, loss of your lower range could certainly be because of age but it's also entirely possible that there is some changes to the way your voice is coming out 
maybe compensating for some subtle changes to the vocal folds that could be reversed uh, with the proper, um, you know, voice therapy uh, and instruction. And, and it's something we, we are always thinking about constantly, what we can do from a procedural, medical, and even therapy perspective to get, uh, get the range back to where it was. Mm-hmm. Good. Thanks for that. Um, what, <clears throat> what can we change about our voice through training and surgery? Um, what about its timbre? You know, we're, t- we're talking about accessing overtones, right? So in my dream, I am a bass and I, you know, I, I've heard basses that can just um, project super easily. Uh, I think it's because of like whatever their, their timbre overtone makeup is there. And it's, it's kind of like magic. Um, what things can I do either through training um, or through surgery to get that? Um, what can people do to, I think a popular one is, is changing their range. Um, uh, people that, that are going through some transition, you know, might, might want to have a, a more higher voice or lower. Um, so what, what sort of things can we do about that? Yeah, it's a good question and it's probably an evolving question uh, in, our, in our field. Um, generally speaking, we prioritize voice therapy um, as the first line treatment for a lot of these things. And the reason is because there's low risk to voice therapy, um, whether it's changing um, your muscle tension, strain, um, being able to more effortlessly access higher ranges or lower ranges. Therapy is generally, I'd say 90% of the time, especially for performers, a good starting place. It can be therapeutic and it can also be a little bit diagnostic. It can help us determine, well, what truly is the deficit? Is it with pitch breaks that happen at very specific places that we need to get rid of? Is it really the higher register loss or the lower register loss? What, what, and really drill down on that. And when you see a lot of the speech pathologists, it's generally you know three to five sessions that last about an hour. So there's a lot of time to go over a lot of those details. So. Um, you know, that could certainly be uh, a helpful place to start. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to surgical approaches to changing the voice, um, that's a whole topic that um, has a lot of complexity and certainly evolution over the last 15, 20 years. But I'd say still in my practice, 90, 95, probably more percent of the time we're doing surgery, it's because there's something that went wrong there's something called dysphonia or something that one used to be able to do is not able to do now. And so we are interrogating the vocal folds in clinic and sometimes in the operating room to reverse a lot of the changes, whether that's a lesion, a benign lesion, like we've all heard of polyps or cysts or nodules or address some scarring, or, or, other, or other pathology or problems with the vocal folds. Um, but in terms of fundamentally changing your range, like let's say you, know, you have a lower range and you wanna have a higher range and for a variety of reasons, um, and therapy isn't quite cutting it, there are, there are procedures that can do that, but those are pretty drastic. And 
um, as someone who's a performer or singer, um, I think one would need to think long and hard before jumping into that kind of procedure to really know what's the benefit risks of, of, a, of a procedure like that. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. So this next question, I don't, I don't know. Um, it'll be interesting to see your answer or hear your answer to, but I've always been, from my experience, I've had a lot of voice lessons from a lot of voice teachers advocating different approaches, um, and which I'm sure like have have worked well for them. Um, what hasn't always been clear to me is what we can expect as a student. Like, what's a reasonable expectation, a reasonable goal to have going into voice lessons? You know, what what's a sort of healthy expectation? Um, there, when you're young, you you think, oh, you know, I just need to do this, and I'll, I'll end up sounding like this. Um, and you know, there are, as we've as you've mentioned, you know, like physical limitations and and um, so I'm wondering, you know, what um, what you think we can expect out of like good voice, just training, um, you know, what, what, like less of surgery, what we can expect. I mean, can I be an opera star? Obviously you can't, you don't, you can't really answer that now, but this is sort of what a singer thinks, I think, um, you know, through training. And um, sometimes I f- worry that people push themselves too hard um, doing weird stuff, you know, whatever their teacher's telling them. Um, I think I heard one where, you know, that the teacher like put their thumb on their throat <laughs> and made them sing really high and, and it hurt, <laughs> but like he had, but he had to sing that way for like the whole, <laughs> the whole lesson. Um, you know, there, there are also things like, um, with the larynx, you know, larynx position, you have a lot of talk about that, you know, used to be low. And then now it's like, I'm hearing it now it's kind of like relaxed. And um, so, yeah, what do you think? What do you think about all of that? I think there's a lot to unpack there. I think good singing instruction is generally helpful. I feel like when we see singers in our clinic who've had formal instruction versus not, you can immediately spot the differences in terms of not just how they sing, but how their phonatory posture, what their, what their, vocal folds even look like, how they're using accessory muscle tension to generate the sound. So I think I think formal singing instruction is helpful and a very needed part of the overall equation beyond what I do, what the speech pathologist is doing. Um, but I do hear you on that about like people pushing themselves beyond maybe what they're capable of. And, you know, we see young people in our clinic who you know, really want to do something and they come in and they have really beat up vocal folds and they need a week of complete voice rest to sort of reset. And it's still an area of ongoing research, but probably the wear and tear of getting edema or swelling on the vocal cords and then having to get rid of that with time, voice rest, steroids, all those things, probably that repeated trauma to the vocal folds decreases some of the pliability or the flexibility of the vocal cord lining over time. And so I think it's good to listen to your body. And, you know, if, if 
I, I, you know, and I think our speech pathologists I work with probably can answer this even better than me, but I think generally speaking, it shouldn't hurt when you're singing, yeah. you know, and if, and a lot of people come into our clinic and say, I thought it always should hurt, you know, when I'm singing these notes and, wow, you know, and, and, and no, it shouldn't always hurt. The pain is not part of singing. It should not be painful. And is it a, is it a limitation with your anatomy? Or is it a problem with singing instruction? Or is it something that we can help with from a speech pathology perspective uh, to, to, to get your voice out in a more efficient way is always something that we are considering. Um, but I, I, not to overly generalize, but I feel like it's the young uh, performer who's trying to really um, push themselves that we see with a lot of strain and uh, vocal pain and um, they have a lot of uh, mental fortitude to keep pushing and keep going for it and uh, it's just a vicious cycle and it just gets to a point where um, and and also when you're singing with technique that is very high in strain uh, sometimes you have to unlearn that and that's why uh, the speech pathologists I work with are really important too, because um, sometimes people get this muscle tension that is very, very integral to the way they perform, where they sing. And to unlearn that takes a lot of deliberate treatment effort, um, which, which, can be, which can be months or years of, of, of therapy. Hmm. What what are say like the top two common vocal problems you encounter from singers um without question number one is muscle tension muscle tension dysphonia so what is mus muscle tension dysphonia so it is the use of our accessory muscles around our throat that are abnormally tense with speech sorry voice or singing voice production that um, can be primary. And what primary muscle tension means is it's muscle tension without an underlying cause. So sometimes, especially younger people can have muscle tension um, because they're really trying to push the limits of their voice, but they don't have anything wrong with their vocal folds. They're not compensating for something. Hmm. Secondary muscle tension is where the person is compensating for some maybe weakness, or maybe they have some scar on their vocal fold. And so in order to generate the same level of voice, they have to compensate with other muscles around their throat. So that's where we often see that the throat, the voice box tends to go up because we're recruiting a lot of these muscles above our larynx to pull it tight. And there's a space right on top of the level of your larynx or your thyroid cartilage mm -hmm. called your cricothyroid, I'm sorry, your, your thyrohyoid membrane. And in a lot, in people with a lot of muscle tension, um, you can't even get your fingers in there. It's just, it's just so tight. It's like a rock. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where our speech pathologists really work is this a primary muscle tension that we need to get rid of the strain or is the secondary to something? And that's another thing we're thinking about. Do we need to address something underlying that might be um, causing this? And as a really quick example, um, 
it's rare, but we see it in our clinic, vocal fold weakness, paresis or paralysis, where one of the vocal folds is not moving as well as maybe it did in the past. And one very common compensatory mechanism is this muscle tension. So that's an example of like secondary muscle tension. So I would say to answer your question, that is like the big thing we see. And it's, it's usually a part of a lot of different things, if that makes sense. Like they may have a polyp and a muscle tension, or they may have a scar and a muscle tension. It seems to be um, superimposed on a lot of patient presentations. How do you know if a singer is singing with too much tension or, um, or if their folds aren't connecting? Like what sort of symptoms can we look out for? Yeah. Um, you know, our stroboscopy can help us. So stroboscopy like is that imaging where it's slow motion wave, but I always emphasize with singers that that's, that that's a tool. That's a tool to help us see your voice box. The most important thing is how you are functioning. So if you are able to hit all the notes you want without muscle strain, loss of um, you know vocal fatigue, you're able to do what you need to do. And we look at your vocal cords and you're showing a lot of strain pattern, then that's okay. You know, is if you're able to do the things you need to do and it's not creating a bunch of pain or issues and not damage to your vocal cords, um, that's fine. Uh, so it's, it's really patient driven what you're feeling is the most important. And the pictures that we see, the videos we take of your vocal cords, your throat, give us clues as to what we can do to get you better. But if if you're feeling awesome and you're, you're hitting the notes you need to and you're not having pain anymore, um, then then the, the pictures are secondary. Mm-hmm. I, I hope that answer, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what's happening when singers get vocally tired? So after a long day of singing, I, I used to sing um, countertenor, and uh, so I would sing in my falsetto a lot, mm-hmm. and I would just be just gone by the end of the day, or a- maybe just after like two or three hours of singing. Yeah, uh, my voice starts getting raspy, um, a little fuzzy. Um, what's happening there, and what you know, what should we do about that? Yeah, it, it could be a couple things. Um, one is that the muscles whatever muscles you're using to generate your sound are just getting tired. You know, it's like um, the fiber type of laryngeal muscles or voice box muscles, um, you know, tend to be sort of like the type one fibers. And what that means is they go on for a while, but they don't fatigue, um, you know, as easily. Um, any, there's a combination of muscles that fibers that, that make up your vocal fold muscles. So the, the muscles could just be simply getting tired. They just don't have the same uh, power that um, uh, they did when you first started singing. Another possibility is that over the course of singing hours and hours, you've developed just a little bit of swelling at the striking zone, the mid portion of the vocal cord where there's the most degree of impact. And that slight degree of swelling out pouching edema. Can you point that out here on the photo? Sure, hopefully this works. I'm not sure if you can see, uh-huh. but where the larynx is um, and you see the vocal folds, yeah. or those, it's in the middle portion of that. Okay. That's where the vocal folds sort of 
rest. And um, you can see a little outpouching, a little swelling. We call it mid-membranous fullness. And when you have that, you can almost think of it like little mutes on your guitar string. It just dampens the vibration. Hmm. So now you have to work even harder to get the same vocal intensity and pitch because now you've got little weights on it. And then when you go to sleep, over time, that swelling goes down and you wake up and that swelling hopefully is gone. If you didn't talk for a week, it would also go away. And that's what steroids are doing. Steroids are taking away some of that swelling in the striking zone. And um, so probably over the course of several hours, you've developed a little bit of edema fullness. And so you're just having to work harder and it's more fatiguing. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So singing through COVID, we can't do it. Uh, we're starting to a little bit. Um, can you just tell us why that was a huge problem and um, if we should still be worried about that? Yeah, you know, it was something that was uh, very important to us and continues to be very important to us because when we are seeing patients in clinic, we're having them sing sometimes with a scope in their nose and looking at their throat. And uh, the question is what activities and procedures are aerosol generating? And, you know, I, I've read case reports and, you know, news articles about uh, people singing and it was sort of a, a big event where it generated a lot of aerosol particles that led to infectivity of the virus. So I think there, there certainly is a risk with singing in closed spaces. Um, we've done, you know, some modification of that in our clinic. You know, we're, we're wearing full protective equipment. Um, generally when we have people sing or when we're doing a scope exam in the nose or in the throat, um, just to protect ourselves. And so, you know, I think as the rates of people that are getting infected with COVID go down. I think it generally makes the whole thing safer. Probably outdoor singing is less risky than indoor singing in closed spaces. Um, but you know, if you look at particle counters when people are singing, um, you're definitely generating aerosols that might infect other people. And you know, I, w I wish I had a firm answer like you know you should sing for 20 minutes, not 40. You know, I, I don't yeah. have an answer like that, but. I think they are real concerns, um, but uh, you know, I think if you take the right precautions, um, you can be you can be safe. And, and throughout COVID, you know, we've been seeing singers, and and this is a little sidestep to your question, but um, sometimes this is a good time to get your vocal folds checked out too. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is because a lot of people are not performing and it's sort of a quieter time and, and things are generally in a good zone right now. And so, it, you know, it's one thing to see people when they have acute changes or sudden changes in their vocal folds, but um, in some ways um, the pandemic has allowed us to see a different cross-section of singers where they're just here for an evaluation of their vocal folds and vocal technique. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm super interested. I totally want to do that. I've always <laughs> wondered, you know, if all my stuff's working right. Um, right. Good to check that out. Um, what about what about gyms? So I think of singing, you know, aerosol. Okay, it's because we're exhaling a lot. Um, 
it's not it's not i feel like it's not too unlike the gym where people are just huffing and puffing you know in a space in a closed space um do you find gyms being also risky in that in that same sense potentially i i think i think it's a great uh analogy a similar sort of thing you're um you're moving a lot of air and so you're not uh the ability to sort of uh, project those particles are probably high in uh, a gym. I think the the main maybe the difference is well, I guess it depends on the gym. Hopefully, you're a little more spread out and you're not directly, you know, yeah, next to it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, it's 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 possible, but um, you know, fortunately, I think hopefully things continue to trend in the in the positive direction, um, and you know, we're able to get back to the same things we were doing. Okay. Um, why is it so hard to sing when we have a cold? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's similar to why you have trouble singing or, or more trouble singing after three hours of singing. Mm. Laryngitis is inflammatory and you're getting some inflammation on the undersurface of the lining of your vocal fold. So very generally speaking, when we think of our vocal folds, there is the body which is the muscle and some of the fibrous covers. And then there is the cover or the mucosa. So that mucosa or cover is free to vibrate and the body moves its position. And unfortunately, when you have a cold, some of that swelling gets stuck in the cover, in mm. the lining. And so now you've got this more bulky cover and you have to work harder to push it, to vibrate it. And your pitch tends to drop because it's thicker. It's a thicker vibrating surface. And so the fundamental frequency that's coming out of that tends to be lower. So um, interestingly, when you have a cold, I don't know if you've noticed this, but you might be able to access a lower um, range than you could yeah. otherwise. And actually a freakishly high one. Oh, interesting. Yeah, my I can hit a high C, awesome. <laughs> which is uh, strange. Yeah. If we could just get people sick all the time, you know, then we could uh, help them <laughs> out when they're trying to get those low voices. That's right. Um, yeah, and sometimes, just as a side note on that, like with people with weakness, one really interesting thing that perks our ears up are they're like, yeah, I'm breathy Norma the, the most of the time, but when I get sick, my voice is better. And um, <laughs> I'm a god when I'm yeah. sick. <laughs> <laughs> and it does make us wonder, well, do you have some vocal insufficiency or some space between your vocal cords? You're not able to bring it together, but when you have that swelling from a cold, now you're suddenly able to bring your vocal cords together. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a good point. Another thing that can do that is when people have reflux, acid reflux, that is irritating their throat. Oh, yeah. In severe cases, we call it LPR or laryngopharyngeal reflux. So stomach acids travel up the esophagus, irritate the throat. It happens more commonly when you're laying down, when you're flat. So it's just easier for some stuff to come up. And uh, not a lot of people, but some people will have swelling of their vocal cords because of that. Um, smoking is another thing uh, that can do that. Uh, smoking can drop your pitch. 
it creates some edema in your vocal cords. Um, people who are smokers have a very characteristic sound uh, to their vocal, uh, to their voice. And when we look at their vocal folds, they have almost a characteristic look. They just look, their vocal folds look very like, kind of like pillows. They're just very um, puffy and uh, mm -hmm. very swollen. Oh, interesting. So I think as we reach the end of this, I, whoever's out there listening, you're welcome to uh, chime in with any questions you might have. Um, I guess I'll, I'll start this out while people kind of <laughs> type it all in. Uh, how um, should, should men sing in their falsetto register? Um, how do I know? Uh, is, that, is that like healthy, I guess, when I make this noise? I think generally, and I'm probably not the expert of, you know, some of the voice production stuff, but, you know, I think generally it is healthy. There are people who uh, sing in a lot of, in, in falsetto. I think the things to keep in mind is, is it sustainable? Are you able to do this for a long period of time without getting vocally fatigued? And is it leading to any pain, strain in your neck? And if you're able to check both of those boxes, you're able to do it for a while without strain and feeling tension and no pain, I think my, my, my answer is fine. It's, it's fine to do that because it's really just a posture. It's a way you're holding your muscles engaged in a certain way and really um, tensing them. Um, and, and the other thing is, as a singer, if you're able to do falsetto softly, hmm. that is a really good indicator that the lining of your vocal folds is probably in pretty good shape. That's oh, the hardest thing to do. Soft falsetto, high, high pitch falsetto softly is very difficult. And if you're able to do that, um, that goes to show that you're, you, the lining of your vocal folds is probably in, in pretty, pretty top notch shape. Wow, that's great. Um, I've never heard that before. <laughs> that's, a, that's a nice uh, thing we can all try for us falsettists out there. In, in yeah. early music, uh, often, you know, you'll you'll use male altos um, for just for a timbre um, instead of female altos. Um, uh, so that's good to know. Uh, a lot of voice teachers talk about breathing. Um, there's a lot of attention toward how you do your breathing and how you exhale. Um, how how important is that to you, or how important do you think that is? Extremely. Um, you know, I'm coming at it more from a simplistic perspective relatively as, as a surgeon looking at things, but um, our speech pathology colleagues really think about breathing at, at a level way beyond me. Because ultimately, we're talking about how to power your voice. And there are ways to power your voice through breath and also through your neck tension. And sometimes it's a trade-off, like the less breath support you have, the more tension you have. You know, you think of those people who speak with glottal fry, for example, they have like no breath support. They're hardly expelling any air. It's very shallow, but, but, they're, but they're generating this sound with very loose, um, some kind of an interplay between loose vocal folds and a lot of tension, a lot of tongue base and things like that. So sometimes clearing the voice up 
is as simple as just providing better breath support. And uh, our speech pathology team um, here is really excellent at thinking about those things. Mm -hmm. Renwick, will we will we be able to come back soon as a choir if we're fully vaccinated? I have qualms about indoor spaces. I mean, I think that's half question for me as the choir director. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the, these these decisions uh, involve not just me, but um, our our bosses, as as it were. And uh, I think the idea, Renwick, is maybe hopefully September, um, assuming things keep trending for the better. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, no doubt, not everyone will be on the same page, on the same comfort level coming back singing and we'll all just kind of have to navigate through that and be as respectful as we can. Um, so what are you working on? I, I sort of touched on this at the very beginning, but like, so what are you currently like, what's, uh, what are you working on like right now? Like what's your, what is, what is your um, focus and, and piquing your interest these days? Yeah. Um, you know, clinically we're really working on this performing voice clinic. Um, Wednesday afternoons, we reserve a few hours for just performers. Um, and, uh, you know, um, we're really trying to make this a truly multidisciplinary experience um, and seeing people when they have voice problems, but even when they don't necessarily have voice problems. So um, really getting that going. Um, I work with Julie Rosenzweig, who's a speech pathologist, and we work together. And the, the really cool thing is we're able to get singers in if they have sudden voice issues generally within 24 hours and so this is a service um, that we hope helps people if they have sudden changes in their voice that we can troubleshoot issues uh, provide some quick therapy or treatments if necessary um, and and then from a research perspective it's 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 different you know i'm very interested in the aging voice uh -huh. so what happens to us as we get older we see things, we see that the vocal cords look a little thinner. Um, they don't have the same uh, movement. They don't have the same pliability or flexibility. And so at the neuromuscular level, what's changing to those vocal folds that leads to that? And so it's a lot of basic science and some uh, you know, in-lab work. But um, And I split my time 50-50 between the clinical practice, surgical practice, and the um, basic science lab stuff. So th that's what I'm working on. Cool. Uh, is there is there a place where we can follow your work there? Um, do you, you know, do you do you publish stuff and? Yeah, you can look for um, you know on our otolaryngology head neck surgery website um, at the University of Washington. Um, you know, I think other like Google Scholar, other other uh, things you can probably follow me or, or look at uh, work. Um, and then uh, yeah, we're not as uh, social media savvy in the research world, but oh, you have better there. Things to yeah. Do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I need to get um, on Twitter. I think that's the key. I'm a decade late, but yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, question, the idea that pop singers don't sing as properly as classical singers gets thrown around a lot. You mentioned that you can often tell if singers ha have had some voice lessons. Singers like Adele have to take long breaks to deal with vocal fatigue. I suspect it's a myth that pop singers don't sing as well as classical singers, but do you find that to be too true in general? Yeah, really, really uh, nice question. And uh, 
I think if you ask 50 voice doctors, you'd get 50 opinions on this. So I'm, I'm definitely just gonna give you my opinion. Um, I think classical singers um, tend to have less problems with their vocal folds. They tend to use better technique than the pop contemporary singers. And I think that the pop contemporary singers tend to have more um, uh, changes to their vocal folds um, that might be because of technique. So I, I, I don't think it's necessarily a myth. I think, I think there is something to that. Um, and when I was at USC, we um, would do these free vocal screenings and we had pop singers and we had classically trained singers who'd come in for this. And um, I think I think we somebody published on this, or maybe it's in the process of being published. But it was really interesting that we found more lesions, more problems on the vocal fold surfaces in the pop group than the classical group. But the classical group was way more concerned about their voice. They were coming in it with way more level of anxiety about their voice and what we're going to find and what does this mean and what is this small little thing based on um, pre and post surveys. So um, really interesting, yeah. not scientific, you know, is this a sampling of, you know, 20, 30 people. But um, I think in general, classical singers tend to have more of a, a training, not always, but they, they tend to do and tend to have uh, better looking vocal folds. Yeah, great. Well, thank you uh, very much for your time. Uh, before we before we end, how can so I feel like I want to encourage everyone to get their folds checked out. Um, it sounds like you we don't have to wait till we're sick or broken <laughs> to do that. That we can yeah. that we can kind of do it now while while uh, while singing isn't isn't at full full speed ahead yet. Um, how do we get an appointment? How does that all work if we want to sure. get our... So if you go to University of Washington, otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, um, or ENT, um, you can look at patient uh, um, appointments and uh, call, and then certainly let the scheduler know, know that you are a performer and want to be seen in our performing voice clinic. And um, we generally put people Wednesday afternoons, but there are other um, uh, voice doctors like me who are happy to see you on other days. And um, we can sort of do a well checkup where, you know, even if there's nothing wrong, just make sure that things are looking good, see if we need to add any voice therapy and get some sense of how things look at baseline. So that if there ever are issues moving forward where you have acute or sudden issues with your voice, um, we have a baseline. We know what things look like before and, and we can go from there. Great. Well, thanks so much, Neil, for your time. You've been most generous with it. Great. And uh, best of luck with uh, all the important work, work you're doing out there for us. Thank you. And uh, look forward to hearing from, from, your, from, your, from you in the future. So, oh, Thank you. I had a great time. It was great to connect with you and great to connect with all of you. So looking forward to uh, chatting in the future. Great. Thanks.